Hi, I'm Scott Goldfein, welcoming you to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is an interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. Whether you're watching the video broadcast on YouTube or at FunkinStuff.net or through other providers, or listening to the audio podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or from many other providers, thank you so much, as always, for your continued interest and support in this program. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Command Center bassist and composer Rodney Skeet Curtis, who has spent more than 40 years holding down the bottom for Parliament, Funkadelic, and Associated Acts. Yeah. Among the all-time classics, his bass virtuosity can be heard on our Parliament's Motor Booty Affair, Funkadelic's One Nation Under a Groove, The Brides of Funkenstein's Never Buy Texas from a Cowboy, The P-Funk All-Stars Live at the Beverly Theater, and George Clinton's The Awesome Power of a Fully Operational Mothership. He has also played with drummer Dennis Chambers and been a longtime sideman for funk saxophonist Maceo Parker. Skeet, welcome. Thanks for having me. How are you? I have one addition for you. Okay. The Brides of Funkenstein, well, two actually. Brides of Funkenstein, uh, Funkle Walk, and Parlette, Parlette, their first yeah. record. Yeah. Yeah. No, my, my intent was that it, it includes that, but it, you do yeah. it done much, much more yeah. definitely. The P Funk universe, right? Yeah, yeah. From like 78 on. Right. 70. Yeah. Well, my first recording was 78, but 77 is when I joined. Very cool. Where are you coming mm -hmm. to us from today, Skeet? I'm at home in my little piece of a studio here in outside of Baltimore. One of the rare times I get to spend at home, so I'm very glad to be here. I'm glad to have you. I had to, like, punch you down a little bit. You were so busy <laughs> going all, yeah. over, all over Europe, you know? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> glad you're back stateside. Mm-hmm. So, so what can I do for you? Let's go way back, all right? You ready to uh, go into those memory banks a bit? Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about how you first got into music as a kid, and what draw, uh, drew you to the bass? You will never believe this story. I, I had to be, less, for the sake of argument, let's call it 12 years old. I, I lived in a kind of depressed neighborhood, not kind of, the projects. At any rate, they had like a 25-cent theater that um, you know my family and friends, we'd all go to. So we all trekked up to this theater and the movie was Your Cheating Heart, which was the Hank Williams Sr. story. So I'm watching this movie, you know, he plays guitar and everything. And uh, the thing, you got you have to remember when this was. This is the 60s. So, and at the very end of the movie, he was on his way to a concert. He stopped off at, it's like some gas station, and he's... You know, he's sitting on like the little porch drinking Coke and, and just playing music with the black guys. And he passed. And that kind of touched me some kind of way, you know, the kind of uh, the, the racial harmony, you know, in the midst of what was going on, actually going on in the world at that time. So and I, that's what made me want to play guitar. But my hands, they were this size when I was 12. So, you know, I couldn't really 
kit, work my way around the guitar too much. So I kind of played on the four strings, you know, of the guitar and just kind of fooled around and played bass and went on from there. And, you know, and I, and uh, late years later, oh, by the way, George Hamilton starred in that. And years later, when I was with P-Funk, I met him in, in uh, Las Vegas. And I told him that story. I said, you are responsible for this. <laughs> he got a chuckle. We laughed and that was it. But yeah, that's, that's it. George Hamilton, you're cheating off. <laughs> George right. Hamilton, he's got one of the uh, best hands ever. Is that what that is? <laughs> okay. Always with the white teeth and the and the yeah. yeah. So and I had friends, you know, in fact my babysitter, her boyfriend then, which is now her husband, he played you ever hear of a group called Frankie and the Spindles? A singing group from around here. At any rate, they were pretty big. And he played bass. And he was, you know, they were very nice to me. He was very, very kind. And to this day, I consider him a friend. And he kind of mentored me in my earlier years of not knowing what I was doing. So, you know, I, I you know, I thank God for people like that, actually. Because where I grew up, you know, it could have gone either way. You know what I'm saying? So. And you yeah, grew up so. in you grew you grew up in what um, what area exactly? It's called uh, Lexington Terrace Projects. Uh, it was uh, it was I. There were all there were a bunch of tall buildings. I was my building was what eleven stories, so that's eleven stories tall, ten apartments on each floor. So that's a lot of people. And, and a lot of those apartments had, they were multi-families, you know, or, or not multi, but extended families. So that's a lot of people. And there were two, three, five of those buildings kind of right around in my area. And how big was your family? Well, at, at that time it was my mother's sister and I, my grandmother, my grandfather and my my mother's youngest brother, my uncle, so it was the three of us, my mother, me and my sister, and the three of them, so six of us. So that was, for them, that was a small family, you know, and whatever it was, three bedroom, you know, three bedroom apartment, something like that. It was, you know, it was comfortable. I mean, I didn't know it was, we were poor until later. Until I told myself we were poor, you know what I mean? Yeah, right. So, you know, you, yeah, it was cool. It's, it's just daily life when you're a kid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, how did things evolve through your teens with music, and what music were you really into? Well, early on, I was into fusion and rock, basically. And, you know, when I say rock, I mean rock. You know, not rock and roll, rock. But they came a period when there was a jazz rock fusion that, you know, Yes, King Crimson, you know, groups like that. And, and I was really into that stuff. You know, I used to play everything, you know, really, really fast and a lot of notes. You know, that was me. I was really into it. But there came a point, I, I forget, or well, I played with a singing group at some point called the Castells. Actually, the first money I ever made in music was with that group. And that 
you play behind a singing group, you got to slow things down a bit. Or they'll, you know, they're really getting your case. So I'm learning to slow, slow down a little bit. And, and through that, that's kind of where I found the group. And once I found it, I was like, you know, this is pretty good. You know, I don't have to play a thousand notes. You know, I can, you know, play right in here. You know, everybody seems to be into it. So I think this is what I want to do. And that's how I started playing what then was maybe soul becoming funk. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. About, how, we, about how old were you then? I was probably 14. And I joined that band when I was 13. I was probably there a year. And that rhythm section split off to become a group called Hot Ice. We were very self-contained. It was, you know, a rhythm section, a singer, and that was it. That was the band. And then we merged with a group that had horns. And they were Uncle Remus. And we were Hot Ice. So our rhythm section and their horn section became a newer version of Uncle Remus. And I played with them for years until I actually, until I went with P-Funk. So, oh. and in that, that band was Dennis Chambers. You know who he is. Uh, Greg Thomas, who plays with P-Funk now. Kevin Oliver, who plays with P-Funk now. And, you know, so here's... There was a so we were really we were by that time we were playing a lot of people on covers, and I kind of discovered that that's me, that's what I want to play. And you know Dennis and I kind of you know we're walking along, you know then we kind of musically I mean he decided he wanted to stay with the fusion and stuff, but I wanted to stay with the funk and stuff. So you know we played in P funk for a few years and then we kind of. You know, still best of friends and all of that, but you know, we just musically, you know, kind of diverged. Mm-hmm. So, and did you feel comfortable right away up on stage, or did it take a while for you to kind of, you know, with P funk? No, no. Before when you first started. Oh no, I was always, you know, what you see now is uh, that's how I've always been. You know, I kind of, you know, I'm sure I look like I'm really. I don't want to say non-committal to what I'm playing, but I don't look, I look somewhat disinterested, but that's, you know, that's the headspace I have to put myself in. You know what I mean? So I have to say to you, it looks like I'm just sitting there almost asleep, but inside my head is, you know, that's what's going on. You know what I'm saying? So I I have to put myself in the headspace to play because I, I, you know, I don't really play, the, my style is not really mapped out. I kind of react to what's going on. And that's why I'm so good for Maceo probably. And George at the time. Because he pretty much gave me a free reign. Do what you do. And Maceo does the same thing. Because I, I react well to the environment. So, And I kind of kind of get in the space to do that. Mm-hmm. That's interesting to hear you describe that. Yeah. Um, so when you started getting into funk though. And you had what seemed to be almost like a farm system for p-funk you know with the four right, of you, right. you know um what uh, what were some bass players you know that you were looking up to at that point where is it just sort of the usual cats like um you know stanley clark or, or larry graham and people like that or well going way back probably first it was jameson more than anybody you know and and years later i kind of figured out that i 
you know, my style is a lot like his, you know, a modern version of it. But I was so influenced by him that, you know, I still play that way. Although, you know, you have to really listen to hear it. But, you know, when I hear myself on playback, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, that's kind of Jamerson-esque. You know what I'm saying? And But early on, it was him. You know, then Larry Graham, of course, who when I met him, I was actually starstruck. I couldn't believe it. He, he more than anybody, I was actually starstruck when I met him, which is probably 70, I want to say eight. I, I, you know, I couldn't even speak. I was like mesmerized. <laughs> and now we see each other. It's like, hey, what's up? Da, da, da. We're talking and it's on and on. But so, so that would be Jamerson, Larry Graham, then, of course, the Stanleys and the Jockos and, you know, that bunch, Miroslav Vitos, all those guys, you know. So, yeah, I have my my jazz influences and then my funk influences. I considered, well, funk brothers. I considered Jameson funk. So Jameson Graham, my funk influences, the heaviest, and then Stanley and Jocko, my jazz influences, you know, with other people sprinkled in it as well. But those are the basic ones. And now, you know, there's Victor and Marcus kind of on the opposite sides of that fence, too. So. Did, did you ever end up having any formal training or it was all self-taught no. and mentored? Self-taught. So I figured out, you know, so I figured out I wasn't as smart as I thought I was. And then I tried to really knuckle down and get some proper training but by then i was i was already rodney ski curtis i kind of had my vision for what i should sound like and, and you know i was i was i wasn't trying to hear you know what anybody had to say at that point you know i was in my 20s you know what do i care about what anybody says you know what i'm saying yeah right yeah, when, i got to but, i'm but, sorry where and when did you get the ski nickname Skeet, my grandfather, when I was born, oh. he's like, man, he's from what my mother said, that boy looked just like a mosquito. And that's how I started. Mosquito to skeeter, skeet. <laughs> so that's always, always been that. I, everybody who really knows me calls me skeet. Anybody that calls me Rodney doesn't really know me, except for Gary Scheider. He always called me Rodney. And Benny Cowan from P-Punk. He always calls me Rodney. Uh, other than that, everybody calls me Ski. <laughs> so you had these influences. How, how did you go about trying to make it all your own, though, and, and have your own distinctive voice? Well, early on, I, I found sax players very interesting. Because when I started, bass wasn't out front. You know, the cats were killing, but it was like down in the mix, way in the back. And sax players were up in your face. So I tried to play kind of like sax players early on. And then through that, you know, during, you know, my career, there came a point when bass players, you know, with the Grams and of the world, bass players started, you know, to get out front a bit. And so I would... Once that happened, I kind of had to suppress the sax part and kind of become more bassy. And I would like, Graham is a heavy influence. But as I told him this story, I, 
I didn't want to see him playing before I tried to figure out how he played. And I used to, I always play with my thumb some kind of way, you know, if it was like this or, you know, not this so much, but, you know, kind of as a, a third, a, a fifth finger, basically. So, but when I, I used to, I wish I had a pick here. When I heard him, I thought I had a pick like in between these two fingers, like this. So I would thumb like that and then take this pick between these two fingers. That's how I thought he was doing it. And then I saw him and I said, man, that's so much easier. <laughs> you know what I mean? But And I had never considered that that's what he was doing, you know, the plucking. And so that, but I was already playing with the pick, so I developed a certain style with that. I didn't want to change it, so I just incorporated what I saw with what I thought I heard, you know what I mean? And that kind of became my style. And, you know, I kind of, my fingering, I try to be precise with it. So I, I got the Skeet's version of precise fingering plus the Skeet's version of what Graham did. And, and you know, then you put the Jocko in there and the Stanley and the Jameson and everybody, everybody I've ever heard in my life is in there somewhere. You know, from some guy playing on a corner to, to Victor Wooten in front of 20,000 people, you know, or somebody, somebody's in there somewhere. So, and I kind of incorporated it, but I tried to, uh, over the years, I tried to stay true to, you know, my own style, pretty much. I didn't want to incorporate what Graham did to the point where, you know, I sound like I'm trying to imitate him. I just want to pay homage to what he does but not imitate him. Uh, and that, I just, and all of that is what kind of made my stuff. Yeah, so you assimilate all these mm -hmm. important influences and distill it in your own voice. Exactly. Um, but it's so interesting. I hear so many stories about, you know, musicians trying to emulate like a different instrument or, um, trying to figure something out on their own. And that so often leads to innovation of cr or creating your own flavor, you know? Exactly. And, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that I chose that path rather than I'm going to sit in this room and I'm going to, I'm not coming out until I sound like Ligram or whoever. You know, I'm not leaving until I do. I chose my path rather than that. A lot of younger players now, well, as YouTube and, you know, they, you know, somebody 12 years old can sound like Victor Wooten. The problem with that is there's already a Victor Wooten. And unless it's the U band, you know, you can't work playing like Victor Wooten. You know, Victor Wooten, only Victor Wooten can be Victor Wooten. There's only one. So, you know, they, they don't develop their thing so much as try to emulate what they see and hear. And that's fine to a point, but at some point you have to you have to show some kind of individuality if you if that makes sense to you. Otherwise you're just a copyist and not a creative. Yeah. yeah. You might you might be the greatest Victor Wooten sounding guy on earth, but there's already a Victor Wooten. Yeah. And I like to and I like to say, you know, people 
you know, when you do this, you do that, I say, well, actually, you know, I've had a lot of years practicing to be a pretty good Rodney Skeet Curtis. So, you know, I, I'll stick with that pretty much. And I've had, as you said, a very long, you know, 40-plus year career. I'm good, you know. I'm very happy playing the kind of music that I play. And people seem to like it. So I play with, when it comes down to it, my professional career has been two bands, P-Funk and Maceo, mm -hmm. 20 years each. You know, 20 years each, and I'm very happy about it. So... You know, I don't have to strain my brain trying to learn other music. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to uh, do a little show and tell here. Yeah, that's me. So, so that was the first one, I believe. Uh, but tell that's us. The first, that's the first release. I recorded yeah, a bunch release. of stuff before that came out. Yeah. First release. Uh, Parlette in uh, 1978. So tell okay. us, though, Skeet, um, the, the, the series of events that led to you connecting with P-Funk and becoming part of the Funk Mob. That's interesting as well. Uh, if you if you know the history of P-Funk, like in the mid to late 70s, like right after Mothership Connection, but before um, Flashlight, the parliament part of, of P-Funk were gonna split out. They became, you know, whatever they became later, but they split out. And Gary Cooper, you know, from Bootsy, I, I grew, we grew up together. We went to the same high school, all of that. Uh, Grady Thomas was going to put a band together. And Gary Cooper put me in touch with Grady Thomas. So now I'm going to play with him. I, I'm thrilled right there, all right? I'm 20 years old, right? So... I go down to Atlanta for these rehearsals. And living in Atlanta at that time is Ray Davis from, from Parliament and Gary Shire from Parliament Funkadelic. So they're, they're kind of sitting around at rehearsal one day and I see Gary Shire get this look on his face like, man, this, this dude is pretty good. So I think, well, I confirmed it years later, but he went back and told George, you might want to try to listen to this bass player that Grady has. And as luck would have it, well, bad luck, good luck, depending on which side you're on, I had a kind of falling out with Grady's manager at the time. And I went home. So I'm home. I'm going back to civil engineering, which is what I did. And I'm very happy to do it. I'm, I'm done with this. I'm going home. So I get home. I'm probably home. I want to say three, four days. Gary Cooper calls me up. Uh, what you doing? I'm chilling. He said, you want to come up to Detroit and record with George? I said, like, George who? That, that's where I'm at. Now, I, I have no, you know, I, I, I can't believe that that's what's happening right now, right? So I'm like, George who? And he said, George Clinton. As it turned out, the band was out west somewhere he jets back to to detroit to record so i go to detroit and it's me bernie warrell gary scheider gary cooper and tyrone lampkin he's the drummer at this point so i you know i'm going and we just playing some stuff I, you know i played this this uh this kind of p-funk medley that i did with um 
with Uncle Remus back at home. They're like, yeah. And I'm playing all the parts at once, you know, almost like classical guitar. You know, I'm playing bass with my thumb. I'm playing like two-finger chords in the middle, and then I'm playing a little melody. It was crazy. You know, I had those kind of skills back then. I don't now. <laughs> but uh, so George is like, yeah, I like this. In fact, the first, the very first song I recorded from, uh, what was it? Mr. Melody Man. That's, I think that's on that album as well, that uh, Parlet Pleasure Principle album. I think, I think you're right. Yes. Okay, that's the very first, very first song I recorded. And then something just like you, which ended up going on the Brides of Fungenstein. So, at any rate, George was like, yeah, I think I, you know, I think I want you to play with the Brides. You know, I'm like, who's, who's that? So he explains it to me. This is before I played a note, right? So now, at, by the time I finished these sessions, he's like, no, I think I want you to play with Funkadelic. So I'll go back home, straighten out some business, and then I go to St. Louis. That's where I meet the band. So we're at the Checker Dome. That's one of those, you know, those old school arenas, 20,000 seats, whatever. I, I can't believe this, you know. Here I am, 20 years old. You know, I'm standing here, we're at sound check, and I'm just kind of looking out. It was unbelievable. <laughs> Needless to say, Boogie and I, eh, you know, that wasn't, that was not a match made in heaven, if you know what I mean. But, okay, this tour ends. Boogie and I are sitting on a plane going home together. He's living in D.C. at the time. I'm living in Baltimore. And by the time that flight was over, we were the best of friends and remained friends, like the best of friends, until he passed. So, yeah, you, you know, you can talk anything out with anybody. You know, you just have to give it a chance and be receptive to it. But to answer your question, Gary Mudbone Cooper, you know, put me in touch with Grady. And through that, I met Gary Scheider. And he kind of pushed me through the P-Funk door. And, wow. You know. As they say, the rest is history. Yeah, so when you were on stage at that first show, I mean, how much of that do you even remember? It was probably just so much adrenaline. You probably It's probably like a blur to some extent, right? i tell you what I remember, and this is all that I remember. I was in there. There was nobody in, on stage. It's just me. The crew is not even. They're kind of milling around. It's just me. So I go up. You know, I sit, stand on the edge of the stage, and I'm kind of looking around. And there's a mic, you know, George's mic is right there. I walked up to the mic. I'm getting ready to say something. My lip touched it, and the whole, whole place went dark. It knocked me off my feet, but it really knocked me for a loop. That's what I remember from that gig. That's all I remember. <laughs> getting sh the shock of life at the St. <laughs> Louis Checker Dome. Had you seen uh, any of their shows before, just as a fan? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I saw them with, in fact, I used to go to a concert a week. Usually it was, like I said, rock groups, Humble Pie, Gentle Giant, stuff like that. But this particular time, it was Parliament Funkin' Rare Earth, uh, 
Ohio players and cooling the guy. So, you know. It's quite a bill. Yeah. Okay. I can yeah, tell me about it. And it's probably five bucks. If that. So I'm like, man, this is good. And they would kill And Gary was, you know, he wasn't that much older than me. So his voice was like pristine. You know, in the midst of all this chaos, you got this dude. He's angelic, his voice. You know, I couldn't, you know, they all looking crazy, you know, like stumbling over each other and, and absolutely killing. It was, it was, and I was like, yeah. Yeah, it was great. I mean, you know, and then I, Junie was there, who later came with us with P-Funk, and it was just great. And probably more than anything, that's when I made the turn to more funky stuff, you know, from the rock stuff that I liked. You know, I'm talking, Peter Frampton was the guitarist, basically. Yeah. He did some vocals, but he was humble by his guitarist. So that tells you how far back that was. So it was, uh, winter. was Glenn, was Glenn Goins with him at that point? No. No, Glenn wasn't there yet. It was, you know, Tiki. It was the whole, whole, you know, mishmash of people without Glenn, basically. I'm, I'm trying to re I don't even think uh, uh, Debbie was there yet. Debbie Wright and Jeanette Washington, they, they weren't even there yet. So, yeah, this was way back. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, well, Junie was still with the Ohio Players, so... That'll give you an idea of the timeline. Maybe 74 or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I was still in high school. I graduated in 74. So, so yeah. But yeah, it was great. And I said, that's what I want to do. And I tried, and, and, you know, I was, you know, I tried to steer the band. Okay, let's, you know, let's kind of slow it down and play, let's play some of these grooves and stuff. And that's kind of what led to, by the time, Grady heard us. We were like in full funk mode, and that that got me the gig with him, and which got me the gig with P Funk. So, yeah. So when you got with P Funk, um, you got thrown into sort of that assembly line right away, or how did that transpire? Well, when I first started, um, George would say, you know, it was me and Boogie, Boogie and I, bass player. I want you to play this, you to play that, blah, 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 blah. So we, the show was basically divided. Boogie would open it and close it. And I would play a bunch of stuff in the middle. And then, you know, eventually Boogie moved over to the guitar and it was just me. And then, you know, at some point Lodge came in. Well, Lodge was, came in earlier than the, when he was playing bass. He was a vocalist. And then there came a point where, you know, I kind of relinquished more and more. And, and then, you know, circumstances led to me leaving. And that's when Lodge, you know, took over, kind of. But I was never, there were only ever two bass players, maximum, when I played bass. It was either me and Boogie or me and Lodge. In terms of the studio stuff, though, um 
being sort of like an assembly line. Um, yeah. When and how well, did you get into that mix? I, I, that's how I started. I started in the studio. And, you know, when I, for my first day, I went from the airport to United Sound, probably cut maybe six, seven songs that, that day. You know, so Mr. Melody. Yeah. In fact, Warship Two Shot, well, that was later, but trying to, just like just like you is on there, isn't it? Yes. That was the second song that I recorded. Mr. Melody Man was the first, just like you was the second. And then there was a song that Mudbone wrote called um Father Time. I don't know if that ever made it on a record, but it was kind of Beatle-ish. You know, I helped I helped them navigate those chords to make it less Beatle-ish, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I said, dude, you you played three or four of those chords in a row, you're gonna get sued. <laughs> you know what I mean? So we kind of worked it out. And George, I was pretty aggressive, you know, arrogant. I'm young, I'm arrogant. You know, George liked that. You know what I'm saying? So. Yeah, he and I were like friendly, like right away, because I I had no fear. I was too young to be fearful. You know what I'm saying? If I'd been 30, I you know I'm I'm afraid of everything. I don't know what to do. I'm I'm scared. I might jeopardize something. But at 20, you don't think like that. The world is your oyster when you're 20 years old. So you know, let's do this. Do it my way. Like what? Who's this dude? And, you know, and George just liked that about me, I guess. You know, I still record with him to this day. Did, did anyone give you um, any guidance on your parts or no. did you just come up with your own? Do your thing. You know, that's what I was saying earlier. You know, even from, <coughs> excuse me, even from day one, it was like, I think this dude might know his way around a base. Just do your thing. And my thing happened to fit their thing. So, you know, the only part I was given in a record ever in my whole career in P-Funk was the middle part of uh, Warship Two Shot. And Bernie Worrell gave me that part. But other than that, every part you ever hear me play is a part that I came up with. Very impressive. Um, so it's one thing to appear on a Brides or a Parlette record, but when you were on Parliament's record, mm-hmm. it's like a whole different level, a whole nother thing. How did it feel to sort of, it's almost like graduating to the first first string, you know? Yeah. I, mean? I uh, I'm trying to remember, because um, I'm playing the, the title track of that. Mode Booty Affair. And um, I'm trying to remember what George said. He said, think of, uh, it was some Casey and the Sunshine Band record. I can't remember which one it was, though. He said, think of that and kind of interpret that in your way. And that's where Mode Booty Affair came from. I I can't remember the record to save my life, though. No, can't remember it. That was a long time ago. I would never think of that association as something. Of course not. You know, that's the the skeetization of Casey and the Sunshine Band. (laughs) Yeah, he said, think of, uh, let me try to hear the part. 
I can't I can't make the connection, but yeah, that's what he told me. And that's how it came out. And I played another song, but it didn't make the cut. So, but that's the only song that I'm playing on that record is Motor Booty. And and you went out on this tour? Yes. That was quite a tour. I mean, next to the mothership, the, 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 water. the most yeah. elaborate one they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did every tour between well, 78, let's say, starting with the Flashlight Tour through 79, which was the Knee Deep Tour. I did everything in there. I had to take a break. I didn't go on the tour at all in 1980. Came back in 1981 and two. And then, of course, Atomic Dog in 1983. And then I, after that, 84. Then it's fuzzy after that because there was a period, there was a real down period in there in the, like the mid to late 80s. Yeah. That yeah, was depressing mm-hmm. for me. But yeah. <laughs> you. <laughs> yeah. So, what, but that underwater tour uh, show, I didn't get to see it in person, but I've seen video. Uh, right. Was that just. Cra- wacky craziness. I mean, you're un- doing your own thing as always, but um, yeah, yeah. What was it? I mean, it was such a huge production. Yeah, it was pretty big. I mean, we re- rehearsed. Where did we rehearse for that? I want to say Detroit. I know my first tour, the Flashlight tour, we rehearsed in Cincinnati. Motor Booty, I think, was Detroit. But yeah, we kind of, you know, they staged it so you don't, you're not stepping because people have tails and, you know, it's all kinds of, like you say, all craziness everywhere. So, so basically, it was where not to step. You know what I'm saying? Do your thing, but don't, don't step here during this song or there when this person walks across and that kind of thing. You know, and and stay out of the way of the the fake aquarium. <laughs> but you know to me it, it looked cheesy from mm-hmm. on stage but then I saw a video of it and then you know okay I can see how this might look like an aquarium but it didn't from, from my vantage point it was ambitious you gotta give very, it that very, very yes <laughs> okay what you got there oh what am I playing on here who says a jazz band can't play funk or whatever it is? Funk says, can't play funk. Yeah, that uh, Groove Allegiance. And what else is on there? Charlie is on there. Uh, Bo- that's Bo- Bootsy. Um, can't remember. I know those two. Because <coughs> Groove Allegiance, I kind of. Kind of lost my mind on that one a little bit. Because <laughs> I would, what would happen to me? This, this, I would get kind of bored playing these parts, and I would just take a solo, like right in the middle. I said, "Hey, they can cut it out if they don't like it." And a lot of it stayed in, like the Parlette Pleasure Principle solo. That's what that was. I'm going like wherever it seemed like, and then I just took a solo. And they kept it. But yeah, Groove Allegiance, that was, you know, that was kind of the height of my jazz funkiness, I guess you could call it. Because that, that was that, <coughs> excuse me, 
that and maybe uh, happy to have. Happiness on your side by Bernie Worrell. That was kind and, yeah, uh, I, I can't hold, I can't hold that one up because it's on my wall back there. Autograph. <laughs> yeah, well, I could yeah. take it off the wall, but yeah, it's back. No, there. don't do that. Yeah, this one. Okay, Uncle Jam. What am I playing on there? I don't think I'm on that uh, that record. Is that right? I'm, I'm not. Sure. What's on then? Give me the rundown. I'll Freak tell you. Of the week, not just knee deep. Oh. Uncle Jam's army. Um, groove maneuvers. There's only five tracks. I, mean. I think maybe Uncle Jam's Army, not the whole thing, like parts of it. Because some stuff I did, it was Bootsy had already done it, and I came in and overdubbed parts on it. 78 was an unbelievable, that was 79, but 78 was such an unbelievable year for the funk mob. Ah, yeah, I think I may have written a song on there. Uh, oh, I don't think so. Is that on there? Well, it's got another version of Mr. Melody Man. Um, we came to funk you, half a man, blow by blow backwards, Melody Man, just like you, Circular Motion. Oh, okay. Maybe Circular Motion. I, I can't remember that one. I know one of those uh, Horny Horn records, <coughs> they did a, OI, a remake of OI on it. Yeah. Well, your name is on it. Yeah. I think Circular Motion. That one? Uh, party Up In Here. That's all I'm on in that one. Yeah, that's definitely one of my favorites on there. That's, uh, I also wrote that. Very cool. That's, that's one of the rare records that Dennis and I played on together. There you go. I uh, can't remember what's on there. Glory Hell Stupid, Party People, Big Band Theory, Freeze. Oh, no, I wasn't, I wasn't in the band then. That's right. Oh, is that right? I was not. Yeah, I took a hiatus. I thought I was going to lose my, my mind. So, kind of like was crazy. <laughs> Yeah, right. No, nothing on there. Maybe, what's on there? Maybe, maybe something. Well, some of this was, you know, old tracks that they took out. I know that. Because um, just had Daryl Dixon was on. He was talking about right. that he worked on one of these like a few years before. Right. Crush it, Trumpipulation, Long Way Around, Agony of Defeat. I you think maybe Long Way Around. I may have done something on that. Like I said, by this point, I, I would just go in the studio with George. It'd just be me and him. You know, and he'd have him pull up these tracks and I would play along with whoever was on it. And he kind of cut stuff in and out. Um, OI. OI. Yes, I wrote that one also. That's me and basically Parlette Band. Everybody else was on tour somewhere. Was this, do you remember, like, was this cut very far before the record came out or close to it? Uh, I think it was pretty much. Pretty much in advance of it. It was it was a long time because I recorded that in 1980. I don't know when that came out. 81. Yeah, so it was here. I recorded that a good year before it came. 
good good pickup on your part. So, yeah, it was about a year before I before it came out. So Skeet, um, all these like incredible musicians and charismatic figures and stuff that were part of the organization at the time yep. you were in it. Can you speak a little bit? Mm -hmm. You talked about how you and Boogie mended fences and you were best of friends. Can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about you know your impression of Boots, your impression of George, of Bernie, uh, maybe Mike Hampton? Yeah. Bernie and I were really close. You know, I I used to just go up there and hang you know hang and playing field with him, stay at his house. You know, we run around doing sessions and stuff. But yeah, Bernie and I were really close. Mike and I were roommates. He was my first roommate. You know, I was young. He was never in the room, so I basically had a single room. <laughs> so, but yeah, Mike and I were very close back in those days. <clears throat> Gary and I, you know, I considered Gary to be like my brother. You know, I really, really loved him. You know, I had great admiration for him. And, you know, I felt a closeness to him that I never realized until he passed. And, you know, I went to the funeral. I went to the the family funeral, the smaller one. You know, I didn't go. They had a big one, you know, but I went to the smaller one and I, and I actually spoke at it. And, you know, that was, I never realized how close. I was to them until that day. You know, that's a hell of a time to realize that, but you know, things happen. <clears throat> George and I, we we like each other, and we were we had a a professional closeness, and you know, I, I kind of looked up to him as not a mentor so much as like an uncle. You know, I I had no problem if I ever needed anything I, I would go right to him I'd cut through the you know the red tape and go right to him and he you know nine times out of ten he was sorted out but <clears throat> Glenn and I we weren't in the band at the same time for very long because he I was in the band uh, I want to say October of 77 it was before my 21st birthday so, so it couldn't have been October, so August, let's say. And when I was, when we were recording um, Warship Tushant, he walked in the studio at that point, and that's when I met him. And of course, <clears throat> they left, um, I want to say March, late February, early March of 78. So that's not very much time. You know, he and Jerome. Rome and Daryl Dixon and you know those guys and it was that was that was I looked at that you know because I you know I was kind of I was feeling where they were coming from but then I said wait a minute those guys are leaving this group no matter what happens you know they've got deals they are gone right and I'm like and I'm thinking I said man I know some horn players you know, I got Dennis. I'm like, man, I can probably, you know, and by that time I had I had built up some, you know, I had climbed up the pecking order a little bit. And I'm saying, yeah, I can probably I could probably get a few people in this band. And that was the Greg's, you know, P Funk Horns, Greg, Greg and Benny, Dennis, you know, Gary Hudge, all those people that came from Baltimore after me 
were a result of Daryl and Glenn and uh, Jerome leaving. Not just Daryl, but the whole horn section. And that's how I met Maceo, as a matter of fact, because Maceo and Cush came in as on a temporary basis as the horn section to bridge the gap between Daryl and them leaving and P-Funk finding their own horn section, which ended up being Greg, Greg, and Benny. But that's when I met Maceo. So you're talking March of 78. 